the, uh, what he's doing here, that he's doing in you, and what he wants to do in all of us together, and what he wants to do through all of us in this valley and in places we don't even know yet. I can really see that. I don't know exactly what form God wants it to take, but I know that God is really doing something special in this faith family. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that you allowed me this opportunity to be able to see more of that. And I know that Chris and other leaders have really had to step up. And you've done a great job of doing that. I've heard just super reports. And I'm glad to hear that. God has blessed our church with leaders and uh, giftedness and important things that we're doing here in this valley. So I was happy to be able to uh, watch that take place, you know, to know that I'm away and things are well led here at Trinity. So that's good. And here's one thing I'll say. One example of a way that God has blessed Trinity and God's at work here is that God has gifted uh, a number of individuals with the ability to teach and uh, preach and connect God's Word to everyday life. And we have the opportunity again this morning to have that happen. And here's, what I'll, here's my guarantee to you this morning. You could go anywhere in the country in any church today, and you would not hear a more thoughtful, biblically-centered, and challenging message than you'll be able to hear right here this morning. That's a guarantee because we have Armando Robles here with us. Armando and Jen and their family uh, do ministry in one of the hottest spots in the world, in the nation of Turkey. And uh, amazing things happening there. They're right in the middle of that. And uh, watching what God is doing through all that turmoil. And Armando is gracious enough when he's here. He's in Walla Walla and he offers his uh, gifts to us. And uh, so Armando's going to be sharing from uh, Scripture this morning and next week. We get to hear from him two times. And next week we'll hear from Jen a little bit about their ministry. So grab your Bibles, get them ready. And I'd like... Armando to come and share with us. Thanks, Brad. Um, it's good to be back. So good morning to you all. Thanks for, for having us, for your kindness and hospitality when, whenever we're in town. And um, the, the first service, it didn't really sh- struck me, Brad's introduction was felt so overly kind of kind. And, and I, I just realized sitting here who, who I am. Um, in this context place today. It's like you go to a party and there's some great friend you haven't seen for forever and you see them across the room and you're walking over all excited to see them and then somebody else you don't really want to talk to stops you. Um, (laughs) And they won't stop asking you questions. And Brad's been gone a couple months. He hasn't been able to preach. And now here he is. And now here I am. Uh, (laughs) So I appreciate the effort to soften the blow. Um, uh, today, we're going to be in Isaiah 32. Uh, so you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Um, and we're, we're talking about peace. Um, and maybe of all the things the Scripture talks about, peace is one of the ones that just resonates with just about everybody. Um, uh, we're, we're naturally drawn to the idea. It's, it's appealing. You look at your life, you look at the world, and you say, peace, we, we need that. Uh, it's not hard to see why. Uh, people fight a lot, right? Uh, at work, at school, on the road with folks they don't even know. Kids fight with each other and with their parents. Husbands and wives fight. Um, but the problem is much more than simply fighting. There, there may be some of you that are sitting there thinking, you know what, I, I actually don't fight much at all. 
maybe you're really mellow, or maybe you're conflict-averse or a people-pleaser. Maybe you have a hard time standing up for yourself. Or maybe you're just a really, really nice person. Um, But still, our relationships are not what we want them to be. Right? There's, There's distance, indifference, misunderstanding, hurt feelings, a lack of time, a lack of energy, myriad other things that make it such that our relationships are not what we would want them to be. Think of a, of a wonderful time that you had with family or with friends. It was a great party. Maybe it was just a quiet evening, a, a, a trip that you took that everything just came together perfectly, right? A, a, a time when you were so happy to be with your friend or so content in your marriage. And it's not just that in that time you have peace in that relationship. You feel at peace, Right? There's a sense of wholeness and satisfaction and contentment. Life feels good. You don't, you don't want it to end. Nobody wants those times to end, but they do. Those times are the exception. They're not the norm. We're not at peace in our lives as much as we'd like to be. And that isn't simply true interpersonally, right? Companies don't run the way that they should. They fail to take care of their employees. Governments can be negligent, lazy, corrupt. Leaders fail their people. People fail their leaders. Countries exploit one another. There's wars all around the world. The weak and the poor are constantly oppressed. And nobody's happy about these things, right? Almost everybody wants peace, which begs the question, if almost everybody wants peace, if we are happiest when we are experiencing it, why is peace so often lacking from our lives and our world? Go go take a poll of 1,000 Syrians and ask them, would you like the war to continue on or would you like peace to return? Go take a poll of 1,000 married couples and ask them, would you like a relationship of peace and flourishing with your spouse or one of hostility and conflict? Do you have any doubts what those polls will show? So if everybody wants peace, why are we so far from it? And that brings us to Isaiah 32. This chapter is about peace, both what destroys it and what will bring it. When he tells us at the beginning, behold, the king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice, he is talking about the coming of the prince of peace, It was promised back in chapter 9. The rest of the chapter will make that clear. And the first two verses, they they really give us a promise, which then gets explained in the rest of the chapter. So verse 2 says, Each man will be like a shelter from the wind and a refuge from the storm, like streams of water in the desert and the shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Safety and provision, protection, abundance, shelter. In so many different realms, we need this. And this is what the Bible means when it talks about peace. This is what the coming king will bring. And the rest of the chapter will teach us three things. It teaches us the nature of the problem, the universality of the problem, and the solution to the problem. And altogether, they teach us simply to find our peace in the coming king. Let me read. We'll start at verse 3 down to the end of the chapter. Then the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed, and the ears of those who hear will listen. The mind of the rash will know and understand, and the stammering tongue will be fluent and clear. 
No longer will the fool be called noble, nor the scoundrel be highly respected. For the fool speaks folly. His mind is busy with evil. He practices ungodliness and spreads air concerning the Lord. The hungry he leaves empty, and from the thirsty he withholds water. The scoundrel's methods are wicked. He makes up evil schemes to destroy the poor with lies, even when the plea of the needy is just. But the noble man makes noble plans, and by noble deeds he stands. You women who are so complacent, rise up and listen to me. You daughters who feel secure, hear what I have to say. In little more than a year, you who feel secure will tremble. The grape harvest will fail, and the harvest of fruit will not come. Tremble, you complacent women. Shudder, you daughters who feel secure. Strip off your clothes, put sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vines. And for the land of my people, a land overgrown with thorns and briars. Yes, mourn for all the houses of merriment and for this city of revelry. The fortress will be abandoned, the noisy city deserted. Citadel and watchtower will become a wasteland forever. The delight of donkeys, a pasture for flocks. Till the spirit of the Lord is poured out on us from on high, and the desert becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field seems like a forest. Justice will dwell in the desert, and righteousness live in the fertile field. The fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. Though hail flattens the forest and the city is leveled completely, how blessed you will be, sowing your seed by every stream and letting your cattle and donkeys range free. Okay, let's, let's go. First, the nature of the problem, verses 3 to 8. Isaiah begins talking about how things will be different when this king comes. And as he does that, he shows us implicitly what's wrong with our current situation. He tells us their eyes don't see properly, meaning that our perception of reality is twisted. Ears don't hear properly, meaning that our ability to receive information is faulty. Hearts don't understand, meaning that our comprehension is flawed. And tongues don't speak rightly, meaning our communication is broken. So speaking of the world's relationship to truth, he says that our perception, reception, comprehension, and communication are all broken meaning there is a deep disconnect between the nature of reality and how we see it and talk about it. We don't see things as they truly are. We don't hear or think properly. What we say often doesn't correspond to reality. And this is true in the great movements of history and entire civilizations. It's true in the mundane details of our lives. So, for example, one of the things that struck me most recently is in the late 1700s, the colonies in, in the Americas were, were flourishing, they were growing fast, and increasingly they were pushing for freedom. In, in South America, there was a constant cry, mas libertad, more freedom. The colonists were tired of being subject to the colonial powers in Europe. They felt that they should be free. There were books and speeches and pamphlets and posters all over the place, constantly crying out, Mas libertad, mas libertad. And what they wanted was simple. Mas comercio libre de negros. More free trade of blacks. They were calling out to have more freedom to buy and sell slaves. And they were frustrated. 
Why couldn't the European powers see their intrinsic right to freedom? Freedom to buy and sell other human beings as slaves. And you read that today, and you think, gosh, are you joking? How can anyone be that inconsistent? Right? More freedom to sell slaves? You can take a, a much more recent example. Um, I would guess that at least a few of you have read about the, the treatment of the many Yazidi women who have been taken captive in the Middle East right now. Um, and for, for many of those who have taken them captive, they're given a pamphlet. And the pam- one of the things that the pamphlet explains is that if one of these women is raped ten times, that she will be cleansed and made a part of the true faith. Uh, it's, it's difficult to even talk about that level of evil and hypocrisy. But today, hundreds, maybe thousands of men will begin and end their sessions of brutality with prayer. It happens in our philosophies, right? In the West, tolerance has long been a high value. But in recent years, it has become twisted to become almost incoherent, right? Because it used to be that tolerance meant that while I held my own beliefs, I supported your right to hold and articulate different beliefs. I may not agree with what you think, but I support your right to think it. We're tolerant of different views. But now, especially in academic circles, tolerance has come to be the dogmatic belief that nothing is more true than anything else. There is no such thing as absolute truth. The only absolute, they say, is that there are no absolutes, and it's wrong to say there are. Now, somehow, the stunningly obvious contradiction of that belief goes largely unnoticed, as does its massive intolerance toward anyone who believes the truth can be known that there's a right and wrong, truth and falsehood that exists outside of our own experience. I know of very few people as intolerant as the current champions of tolerance in the West. You, you can multiply examples almost endlessly. Why is the world like this? Why are we? Well, our passage makes the answer clear. It says it's our own selfish desires. And here's the point. Much of the time, our beliefs don't shape our desires. Rather, our desires shape our beliefs. Not all the time, but much of the time. Our beliefs don't shape our desires. Our desires shape our beliefs. We want certain things, and so we twist our thinking and our speech to get what we want. And this problem started at the very beginning of time. Right? What, what happened to Adam and Eve? Did they, did they sit down together, just have a conversation about what's true and the course of wisdom, and say, you know, yeah, probably it would be a good idea for us to start to want to eat that fruit. We should do that. That would be smart. That, that's not what happened. Right? They looked at the fruit of the forbidden tree, and they wanted it. And then in order to get what they wanted, they began to twist their thinking. And the result is that our eyes and ears, our hearts and mouths are all broken. We don't see things rightly. We don't speak about things truly. Don Carson describes how this unfolds in our lives in this way. He he writes, Most believers are not enticed into sin by the prospect of committing great evil. Far from it. They rationalize their way into committing evil by seeing in it some kind of good, or at the very least by blocking out the evil dimensions. 
they cheat on their income tax, not because stealing and lying are gross sins, but because they tell themselves there's so much government waste, because government takes more than its share, everyone's doing it and no one will know. They gossip about neighbors and friends, not out of conscious disobedience to God, but because they feel they are passing on truth, the result of mature discernment. They nurture bitterness and hate against a spouse or fellow believer, not because they hunger to ignore the unambiguous warnings in Scripture against bitterness and hate, but because they are persuaded their emotions are not evil after all, but simply justifiable instances of righteous indignation. Exactly the same warped motives often prevail in their doctrinal judgments. Christians will be seduced into thinking there's no hell, not because they choose to be selective about what teachings of Jesus they will accept, but because they have heard some extrapolations on the theme of God's love that not only go beyond the biblical text, but also deny some other part of it. They will offer generous support of heretical teachers who appear on television, not because they love heresy, but because the scoundrels on the screen talk fluently of joy, peace, triumph, experience, and of some sort of Jesus, and who can be against such things? This impacts our lives on every level, even in, in, in the very simplest things. So on, on Saturday and, and Sunday mornings back in Istanbul, I, I, play, um, uh, I play basketball with a group of Turkish guys, and they fight a lot. Um, but there are certain kinds of fights that I have never once heard in nine years of playing together. Try, try to imagine with me. Ali has the ball. He drives to the hoop. There's some contact as he shoots. He misses the shot. Isan, who is guarding him, calls out, I fouled you. Ali says, no, no, it was clean. I just missed. And Isan says, no, I fouled you. It's your ball. And Ali says, are you calling me a liar? It's your ball. <laughs> I, I've never heard an argument like that. Or you, you can look at our house. We have a fish tank. The boys take turns feeding the fish. And there have been several arguments about whose turn it is to feed the fish on a given day. But do you think I've ever heard something like this? I fed the fish yesterday. It's your turn. No, no, I feed the fish way too much. I almost always feed the fish. You should get to do it more. It should be your turn. No, no, ask dad. I fed them yesterday. It's your turn. No, dad, dad, my brother won't let me let him feed the fish. Somehow, I have no memory of an argument like that. So much of what we tend to believe is a justification for what we want. Let me, let me press you even on a little bit more. Why, why do people call stolen music and movies pirated? You think someone was sitting there making a copy of something they had no right to make the copy of, and they said, gosh, I kind of feel like I'm sailing across a galleon in the 16th century Caribbean. I think I'll call this a pirated movie. I, that strikes me as an unlikely explanation. I think the reason people call it pirated is that it lets people use them without really owning up to the fact that they're stealing Recently, a friend of one of my boys gave him several illegal copies of DVDs. I explained to the kids, they're stolen and we can't keep them. I explained, look, it costs a lot of money to make these movies. The company that made them has the rights to them. They sell the movies to make money. That's their business. And the person who made this did it illegally so they could keep all the profits for themselves. That's stealing. I don't see how there is anything unclear about that morally or legally. So why do so many Christians listen to and watch stolen music and movies? Because they want to. I think it's just that simple. When I explained this to my son, he immediately asked about his friend. He said, does he know they're stolen? 
And I responded, well, yes and no. On the one hand, it's hard to imagine he thinks the DVDs that come in those floppy little plastic, you know, sleeves are the real legal copies. On the other hand, no, he doesn't entirely think of what he's doing as stealing. We're out of touch with reality. And the point of all of this is that truth is a moral category. Over and over again, the Bible makes clear that when people believe wrong things, it is because they have evil desires. Read Romans 1. We suppress the truth because we don't naturally want to deal with the real God. We would rather have idols more to our own liking. So we twist our minds so that we can still live with our consciences, but get what we want. The Bible's primary answer to wrong belief is not more information. It's repentance. Now, that is not to say there's not times when we need more information. There certainly are. We can be ignorant about all kinds of things. But it is to say that the primary problem when we think wrongly is that we desire wrongly. I would guess that many of you have known a workaholic parent. Right? Their, their job is their highest priority. They neglect their family and their children. So promises are broken. Quality time is not spent together. The family always takes second place to work. Jen and I talk regularly about how much we have to be vigilant to protect against doing that, because that's a temptation for us. Um, well, what does that parent say? Do they say, you know, my work is my idol. It's my true source of value. It's my highest priority. And I'll sacrifice my children to the God of my professional success if I have to. I've known a lot of people who struggle with this. I've never heard anyone talk that way. Instead, they say, I want to provide for my family everything I never had. I have to be faithful to my responsibilities at work. People are counting on me. They're not idolaters neglecting their children and spouse. No. It's all about provision and responsibility and diligence and faithfulness. Some of you may be tracking with me. You say, okay, our selfish desires cause us to twist our perception of reality in the way we speak. But what does that have to do with peace? Because wasn't that supposed to be our topic? I'm glad you asked. The reason all this matters is that this is the source of conflict and oppression. This is the reason why the world lacks peace as a whole and why we do in our own lives. This is the problem that this promised king must solve. Verses 6 and 7 tell us this is the reason why the hungry remain hungry and the poor are oppressed. Because on the one hand, everybody knows we should care for the poor. Who would deny that? But to do so often doesn't fit with the desires of human hearts. So policies, beliefs, and actions are all twisted in ways that hurt those who cannot protect themselves. And if this was solved, husbands and wives, parents and children, they'd love each other and care for each other in harmony. Our families would work. Those who fought for freedom wouldn't enslave others. Countries wouldn't be ravaged by war. There'd be plenty of provision for everyone. This is the nature of the problem. How do we get to peace? Now, the picture up here through verse 8 that Isaiah has been painting is pretty bleak, right? Wars, petty fights, dishonesty, theft, oppression. And on the one hand, almost anyone can look at the world out there and see a great lack of peace, see that humanity is not flourishing. But 
some of us are. Some of us feel quite good about how things are going. Some people are on top. They may see that the world out there is broken, but their little corner is looking pretty good. Right? They may see that others are oppressed, but they are lucky enough or powerful enough that it doesn't really touch them. They are, in the language of Isaiah, at ease, complacent. They feel secure. And before Isaiah can talk about the solution, he needs to show his hearers that this problem is universal. It applies to everyone. You see, some people, while they can't really deny the truths of verses 3 to 8, they are unlikely to be particularly concerned about them. When you're on top, so much of this can feel like other people's problems. And so Isaiah turns on that group of listeners in verses 9 to 14, and he pictures them as wealthy women of leisure. And this is what he says. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women. For the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. And he goes on. And there are really two incredibly important principles here. The first one is that when things are going well and your facade is standing, it is very difficult to see the danger that you're in. But the second one is that our facades are just that, facades, and they will not endure. Many people are living a lie. You hear the big stories all the time, right? You're the the famous athlete who made hundreds of millions of dollars, and now you find out that they're in debt, don't have a penny to their name, right? It's a common story among the rich. Up until the very end, they continue to live their lavish lifestyle, pretending that nothing was wrong, pretending to be something that they weren't. And as long as the walls held, they were good, but then eventually the whole thing comes crumbling down, and now they're poor and humiliated. Or you read of the religious leader, esteemed, honored, respected by many, a holy man. And then the day comes where the women he's assaulted start to come forward. Or it's revealed that he's used church money to pay off debts from his gambling addiction. I I know churches where both of those things have happened not too long ago. The facade comes down, and when it does, everybody's shocked. Because he kept on right until the end as if nothing was wrong. And we tend to hear stories like that and look down on those kinds of people. How could they be so foolish or such hypocrites? How could they live like their money would never get out or think they would never get caught? But there's a fundamental sense in which we all tend toward this. If God is real, if we will all stand before him one day and give an account, then all of those disgraced leaders and rich people are just a picture of the reality that will soon face everybody not sheltered by the salvation of Christ. Because we all have facades. We all pretend to be other than we are. We are all living on borrowed time, and the walls will come down. The God who sends his reign on the just and the unjust will one day send fire. And as long as we're on top, we can be incredibly comfortable in our dishonest, make-believe worlds. We can live as if tomorrow won't come. Isaiah assures us it will. Peace and prosperity that are built on falsehood will not endure. And there are certain realities about which, frankly, as people, we would just rather not think. In the words of T.S. Eliot, humankind cannot bear very much reality. The, the, the city of Jerusalem was, was a picture of this. 
In Jeremiah 7, you read, Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Well, what, what was he talking about? Well, there's a lot of people who lived in Jerusalem, and the temple was there. And there were many people who felt that meant they were completely safe. Right? Surely, God would never allow the, the city where his name and presence dwelt to be destroyed. Right? Other cities could face his judgment, but not Jerusalem. Their sin and rebellion were of no concern. Judgment wasn't a problem for them. Right? And so it, it's as if the prophets would come to them and say, you've got a problem, you've got to repent. And they would respond, we have the temple, we have the temple. Right? And Jeremiah tells the readers, his listeners, you're deluded. The temple can't protect you from the coming judgment. Isaiah tells his the same thing. You're deluded. Your wealth can't protect you from the coming judgment. Well, why can't it endure? If you're on top, why can't the good times just keep rolling on? Because they have no foundation. Twice Isaiah describes these women as at ease or complacent or feeling secure. And those are unusual words to use in a context like this. They're words of security, words that describe foundations upon which to rest. They're going to come up again later in our chapter. The, the problem for these women, the problem for the world, is that the foundations upon which we naturally seek to rest our peace are insufficient. Temporal things don't endure. And if your house is built on things that will pass away, much less things that are going to be destroyed by the wrath of God, your supposed peace will vanish. The idea is pretty simple. Every lie will be exposed. Every false foundation will fall. So in verses 13 and 14, the houses of joy become the joy of wild donkeys. Uh, that's, that gets translated there, merriment and stuff. It's, it's the same word. It's the word joy. The, the people are gone, destroyed or exiled, and the houses are now empty, and they provide shelter for wild animals. Many people live at ease in the midst of a broken world, but the only way to do that is to pretend that nothing's really broken, and that's to live a lie. It's a charade. It doesn't endure. And so Isaiah calls out to the complacent in every age, tremble, shudder, beat your breasts. In short, repent. The situation of the city in East St. Louis in, in, in the 90s was, I think, a really good picture of this. Um, Jonathan Kazol wrote about it, and at the time that he wrote, these were some of the relevant facts. The city had run out of money to provide garbage services, so residents were told to begin using their backyards as garbage dumps. The city's sewer system was largely broken, and so outside of one group of apartments, 8 million liters of raw sewage had formed a kind of horrific lagoon. Local chemical plants were dumping arsenic, mercury, and lead directly into the soil, but did not have to pay a penny of taxes to the community because the government had allowed the chemical plants to incorporate themselves as small towns, even though nobody lives there. And that meant that the health officials of East St. Louis had no jurisdiction over the pollution they were dumping directly into their community. And also it meant that the profits went to the plant owners who lived elsewhere, mostly in St. Louis. At one point, they closed the footbridge over the river into St. Louis to prevent the poor black residents from entering St. Louis. It was only reopened by a court order. At the time he wrote, there was not a single woman's health doctor in the city. 
The local high school would get closed multiple times every year because raw sewage was flooding the halls. That wasn't that big of a deal, though, because they only had an average of one textbook for every four students, which wasn't surprising because their funding was less than half of the surrounding neighborhoods, even though they paid the highest tax rate in the state. At one point, the state government actually removed East St. Louis from the official state map. It's like the fourth or fifth biggest city in the state, just pretending it's not there. Well, the wealthy residents that lived in the surrounding communities of St. Louis, how, how did they feel about that? How did they feel about their flood water and waste flowing down the hill into Saint, East St. Louis without paying a penny for it? How did they feel about using the town to house their chemical plants and prisons without the town itself benefiting from even a penny of taxes from them? How did they feel about the children they are going to school in overcrowded, horrible schools? Well, all accounts you can read suggest that mostly they didn't feel much of anything. They may have been afraid that they'd take a wrong turn off the highway and end up there for a minute. But as long as they didn't have to look at it, mostly all the people that lived around were good. St. Louis is not unique. Stories like this are repeated in city after city and country after country. Our natural tendency as long as things are good for us, is to feel at ease. Isaiah says no. The lack of peace in our world is not just a problem for some, but for everyone, even those who don't see it yet. Verse 13 speaks of briars and thorns, pointing us back to the curse of Genesis 3. Verse 14 tells us that the land will be forsaken and deserted forever. In short, Isaiah says, if you don't see your great need for the Prince of Peace to come, you're living a lie, and the lie will soon be exposed. The problem is universal. The need for peace is universal. That's why we need the king that was promised back in verse 1. And the rest of the chapter shows us what happens when he comes. What's the solution? And if if you're reading carefully, when you get to verse 15, there's something that that startles you. There's this strong lack of congruence with what came before. And it's not an accident, because verse 14 had just said that the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. Forever. Meaning the problem of this world is intractable, unsolvable. No passage of time, no progress, no peace plan can fix it. In its nature, the disharmony and conflict in our world and lives are permanent. But verse 15 begins, until. He says, the city will be deserted forever, until. And that doesn't make sense. Clearly, something is breaking into the natural course of events. The result of the fall of man into sin do not simply pass away. But God insists, despite that, the story's not over. A prince will come. And once he does, the whole equation gets changed. Forever can become until. Look with me. This king of verse 1 says it'll pour out the spirit and bring abundance. Okay, well, how exactly? What is it that he needs to do? Verse 16, justice and righteousness. This is what our world is lacking. It's the lack of justice and righteousness that destroys peace, that enables the powerful to oppress the poor, that enables the fool to be esteemed as wise and the wicked as good. 
It's the lack of justice that oppresses the residents of East St. Louis and South Hall, London, and the slums of Nairobi. We lack righteousness, and so we desire evil things. Our world lacks justice, and so we often get away with it at the cost of someone else. Verse 17, the effect of righteousness will be peace. This king will bring righteousness, and in that, he will bring peace. This is the prince of peace. Do you see the parallel between verse 18 and the complacent women of the previous section? It's even stronger in the original because the words secure and quiet in verse 18 are, in this translation, undisturbed. They come from the same words used in verses 9 and 11 to speak of being at ease and complacent. There you had a peace that was based on a false security that would not endure. But here is a security, a quiet that are permanent. That's why Psalm 112 says the righteous will never be shaken. This is the foundation upon which true and enduring peace rests. There is no peace without justice and righteousness. And that's, of course, the problem with those who simply avoid conflict or are afraid to challenge a wrong. A refusal to speak truth and to rebuke evil, that does not come from a love of peace. It comes from a lack of commitment to justice and righteousness. And the state that results may avoid open conflict, but it is far from the flourishing peace of abundant life that Isaiah has in mind here. But this is what the king, the prince of peace, will do. And you may have noticed that in verses 15 to 18, there's nothing about God's people doing anything. God simply proclaims that all these things will be true when this man comes. But verses 19 to 20 make clear this is not for everyone. We are not passive. We have to receive it. Verse 19 tells us, it will hail when the forest falls down and the city will be utterly laid low. Now, unless you've just read the rest, first part of Isaiah, that's seems like a very obscure statement. The forest is Assyria. That's made clear in chapter 10, the the dominant oppressive power of the day. The city is Jerusalem. So this is a picture of judgment coming both on those inside and outside the proclaimed people of God. Which is to say not all will receive this peace. Judgment will come on both oppressor and oppressed, both those inside and those outside, those who call themselves the people of God. Or you could say this way, for those who do not trust and obey him, the prince of peace's arrival will not be peaceful. But for those who do, verse 20, happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. This is a picture of a true settled and abundant existence, which is at the heart of the Bible's definition of peace. First, they will be settled. There'll be plenty of time to plant and harvest crops and raise livestock. And second, they will be abundant because the one who can plant by the water never needs to fear crop failure. Happiness and justice, abundance, freedom, righteousness, settled permanence. This is Isaiah's picture of peace. This is what this king will bring. And our response is clear. Receive the one who brings true peace. Because the king has come, and he does provide justice and righteousness. 
and lives and communities and countries already begin to be transformed as his people walk in his steps, bringing justice and righteousness and being makers of peace. So find your peace in the promised king. He alone is the prince of peace. Let's pray. Father, we're very grateful to you. Lord, grateful that you have not treated us as we deserve. You have not abandoned us to our folly and deceit and brokenness. But Lord, you you make a way forward. Um, Father, that that we've created a a situation and a problem that we cannot solve, um, you intervene and you have solved it and you are continuing to work that out. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that he came, that he died, that he rose. Grow us in faith. Help us to walk in your ways. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Armando. Uh, We're going to continue to worship.